Welcome to Essential Wisdom, Inspiring Future Female Physicians, a podcast for engaging and informing the next generation of women in medicine. My name is Carrie DeBell. I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. Essential Wisdom is a podcast for discussing the joys and the challenges of being a woman in medicine through the sharing of stories and advice by women who mentor us. Take a seat with me at the desks of the mentors. Come along to walk the halls of the hospitals to experience residency and life as a physician personally, as we get to know these phenomenal physicians and scientists. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Essential Wisdom, Inspiring Future Female Physicians, Week 2. This week, we have the pleasure to welcome two surgeons to the show, the first of which we have today, Dr. Christine Risk. Dr. Risk practices as a breast surgeon at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, where she's also the director of the Comprehensive Women's Health Center. She's a graduate of the University of Rochester, where she earned her Bachelor's of Science in Neuroscience. She went on to receive her MD at SUNY Upstate Medical Center, completed general surgery residency at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and a fellowship in breast disease at Brown University Women and Infants Hospital. Dr. Risk is truly passionate and caring about her work and her patients. In her 13 years of practice, she has served as faculty at Roswell Park Cancer Institute, SUNY Stony Brook, and St. Francis Hospital. She is dedicated to empowering her patients and their wellness as individuals. Dr. Risk was featured as a commentator for Breast Health on Fox News in 2014 and 15, and contributed a chapter to the book, Surviving Cancer, Our Voices and Our Choices. To name just a few of her clinical interests, she's interested in breast cancer treatment, nipple sparing mastectomy, and breast conservation. Dr. Risk, I'm thrilled to welcome you onto the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Carrie, for for having me and for putting this together. It's absolutely fantastic, and I am uh, absolutely excited and thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you so much. So as we kind of dive into our conversation, the first question that I like to start um, with is just tell us about your path to becoming a female physician. That's a, that's a good question. I, um, I think I'll go back to 1983, which is probably before most people listening to this were born, but, uh, my mom, um, had apparently saved something that I had written in 1983 when I was in third grade. And, uh, she gave it to me when I graduated from medical school and it's pretty much a crumpled up piece of paper. Um, uh, notebook paper. And I had described even at that point, um, three goals in life. Uh, my first goal was I wanted to be a singer, uh, because I like to sing and thank God I am not a singer because I would never make it. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, I wanted to be a singer. I then wanted to be a pediatrician because I loved kids and apparently someone somewhere, uh, mind you, no one in my family is a surgeon, although I certainly in my immediate family um, have medical people, uh, including my two sisters. Um, but even as a third grader, I wrote out, uh, someday I want to be a surgeon. Wow. And so uh, even to this day, nobody can quite figure out where that came from or what, what the reason for that was or, or how. Um, but I think it gets at, um, 
a very, very early thought that I, I had, which is I, I want to make people better and, mm-hmm. and I want to be able to do it relatively quickly. Not that there isn't tremendous ways to help people in, in many ways in medicine and, and out of medicine. But, um, I think, I think with surgery, you know, unlike maybe internal medicine where it takes, you know, 10 years to manage someone's diabetes, which is very important. Um, there's much more of an immediate gratification with, with, um, taking care of people surgically. And I think that just fits my personality and clearly fit it as a third grader. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 even to this day, I'm I'm not quite sure. I also, as I mentioned, have two um, older sisters that are in medicine. And so um, I think I just never saw gender as a barrier in the medical Mm. field per se, um, certainly in the surgical world, as I'm sure we'll get into, there can be challenges as a female, but I, I just think having, having grown up with, with my sisters, um, who are a bit older than me doing it, I just, I just thought, well, gosh, why not? I sure can too. And did that feeling, um, go forward with you when you went to college and chose to study neuroscience, for example? Um, I would have to say when I was an undergrad, I wasn't quite sure, um, at at a conscious level, although clearly as a third grader, I was, um, (laughs) which is interesting how that is. But when I, when I went to, um, to undergrad, I absolutely loved, uh, everything about neuroscience and the brain and so much of what we didn't know and what was mysterious and what was waiting to be uncovered and learned. And so I would say maybe towards the second half of my undergraduate experience, again, I started to realize, gosh, I think I want to go into a medical field. But I think coming into undergraduate, um, I was just so excited and curious to see kind of what there was out there and and to sort of find my place in, in the world. Yeah, certainly. I, I think undergraduate can be a really formative time as well as for some people, possibly a time that deters you from going into medicine if you don't have the right people that um, give you the advice and the resources to push you into that direction. So I'd be curious to know what your experience was at that time. Did you have like a pre-med mentor or somebody that you spoke to about your thoughts? That's a really um, good question, and I and I really appreciate. I think um, the point that that you're making here. Um, so I went to, as you mentioned, the University of Rochester, which at the time and, and probably still is, very very heavily, you know, um, you know, biological science dominated, and um, mm-hmm. a lot of people were pre med and. Um, is a fairly big school. I mean, it wasn't huge, but it, it wasn't small either. And I definitely remember feeling very lost and overwhelmed, um, to be quite honest, uh, feeling mm-hmm. like there's, you know, just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people and everyone wants to go into to pre-med and, and you know, mm-hmm. walking in, I wasn't entirely certain of it, but it was certainly a possibility. And like anything in this world, you, you meet people that will try to dissuade you or convince you otherwise or convince you it's not a good idea or quite honestly convince you it's not attainable. Mm. And I would say to that, it, you know, put your eyes on the endpoint. Um try to find good mentors. There are good mentors. Uh, I had one in particular who was absolutely stellar. 
Um, she was actually um, one of my mentors in the neuroscience program. She was a PhD um, in neuroscience, but she was just amazing as far as really reinforcing to me that I'm capable and I'm able and I'm bright and I can achieve if I put my mind to it. And I think she was really important um, because, you know, you come in so unsure of yourself, or at least I did, to be very honest. Mm-hmm. And when you have a lot of people, sort of that weed out session um, mm-hmm. or sessions, um, you, you start to believe people. And unless you have those folks that say, look, it can be done if you want it to be done, don't take your eyes off the goal. Um, I think you can get really lost really fast. And I think you can get very dissuaded very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's tough. And I think it's also important to surround yourself with a group of really positive people. Because again, in undergraduate, um, although it was many years ago, you know, you still remember how competitive it was and how, you know, some folks are cutthroat and how there's just so much stress and, you know, it's unfortunate because honestly, looking back, it was some of the best four years of your life, really, <laughs> but you're too lost in the intensity of trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do when I graduate? You know, I have all this debt, although now I'm sure it's infinitely worse than, than how much I <laughs> And you just kind of feel like, oh my God, I have to succeed. I have to achieve. What am I going to do? And, you know, unless you're surrounded by a really positive group of friends, um, and mentors, I, I think it can be really, really challenging and difficult. And, and that's really, it doesn't have to be that way. I love the point that you make about that because, um, just speaking from my personal experience, the reason that I think I was able to go ahead and choose the pre-med tract and do a biology degree and all this stuff to prepare to go to medical school was one specific mentor that I had. And I often tell her that the reason that I felt like I was able to do that was because on the day that I walked into her office and I said, Hey, do you think I could manage doing these different things in order to make it work? She just looked at me and she said, yeah, of course you can. And, um, you need people that can just tell you, yes, you can do this. So I think that's really pertinent, especially for young women, um, possibly in areas that are, you know, highly male dominated. I mean, I know you can speak to this in the surgical field, especially. Definitely. And I think Carrie, your point is again, completely spot on. Um, You know, we believe we can achieve, but there has to be the voice of somebody out there saying, look, you can do this. And, um, you know, it's critical. And Mm -hmm. as far as mentors, you know, I I have mentors that I still stay in contact with. I have mentors from my fellowship. I have mentors from my residency. I have mentors. I absolutely love one of my mentors from my very first job. You know, you kind of walk in. Um, you know, it's, it's worse than internship. Your first day is being an attending. You're like, oh my God, um, but believe you me, it's infinitely worse than being an intern where yesterday I I was a fourth year medical student and all of a sudden I have the letters M and D behind my name and I write orders and I take care of people. And it's horrifying. The only thing more horrifying than that is actually being an attending for the first day. Um, and we can talk about that, but my point is you have mentors. Mentorship is key. Um, at every phase, not just in the beginning. And I also had great advice where one of my mentors even said to me, look, 
you can have different mentors for different things. I mean, I think that's such wisdom. And I'm so grateful she said that to me. She said, look, you, you can have mentors in the research world. You can have mentors in the surgical world. You can have mentors in the humanity world. You can have mentors in the balance, you know, with life and having a family world. Um, it doesn't have to be a mentor. You can have multiple mentors that mentor you differently. And so, yeah, I think, I think mentorship is something that starts early, that is critical, and that you know, certainly is something that you take with you even now. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, realizing that you can have multiple mentors for different things, um, is, is, is really important. I absolutely love that. Um, I was reading about that recently, uh, this idea of creating your own cabinet of mentors, um, Mm -hmm. that everybody has a different role and they're your cheering squad. Um, I love that idea. So, um, in terms of then how you wound up getting from your third grade self to selecting in your medical school to do surgery, what, what, what do you think it was that helped you to make that decision? Yeah, you know, that's another really great question and such an evolution. I originally, again, should have listened to my third grade self, but apparently not. Um, When I went into medical school, (laughs) I really thought that I was going to be, you know, a family practitioner and, you know, drive a medical van looking for homeless people to provide health care for them. And then from there, I sort of evolved into women and women's care and taking care of women. So I've always definitely had a, a strong and heavy um, interest in that and and really considered a career in OB-GYN. Um, and I, I kind of tried to keep all my options open. And I will very, very, very vividly remember my first rotation as a medical student, which by the way, if I could just digress for 30 seconds, when you're a medical student, there is such, again, the, the, the competition, the stress, you know, oh my God, you know, the lottery system, we had a lottery system of how to, you know, choose our rotations. And my class wasn't even 400 people, but somehow I got the last number of 400. And so I didn't have a choice in the order of my, you know, third year clinicals. And I was so upset for a brief moment, not realizing that that that's absolutely insane and that there's very few things that you should really get get you that excited. Um, but of course, as a third year, uh, and you and your colleagues, again, surrounding yourself with that positive cabinet. I mean, if you listen, listen to some people, they'll say, Oh, it's done and over. You're never going to get to do what you want to do because you you know, you're not going to do it before Mm -hmm. January, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, completely ridiculous. There's plenty of time, breathe and (laughs) breathe normally and relax. Um, (laughs) but getting back to the fact that I, um, got to be on the neurosurgery service, Um, And it was split three weeks neurosurgery and three weeks neurology and talk about how the universe works. I had never entertained neuroscience or, or, excuse me, neurosurgery or neurology for that matter. And I think that very first rotation was so critical because I vividly remember um, day one of third year being on the neurosurgery service. And I vividly remember the very first patient I ever got to take care of. And she was this beautiful 25-year-old woman. Um, Mm -hmm. You could tell even with, you know, half her head shaved and a quarter of her skull missing how absolutely beautiful she was. And she was the mother of two. 
And she had um, been beaten with a baseball bat um, by her significant other to the point that when we would walk in and scream, you know, show me two fingers. And of course, you know, there's all this noxious stimuli to see, you know, how, how someone responds, whether you, you know, give them a sternal rub or, you know, uh, some other form of, of somewhat noxious stimuli. And mm-hmm. she would barely open her eyes. And I remember thinking very vividly, oh, my God, this woman, there's nobody in the world that can fix her. There's no surgery. There's no medicine. There's nobody that can bring her back. And this is probably going to be her life. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a third year in in the very first day just being so devastated by the fact that here is this beautiful young woman whose life is pretty much over, who's the mother of two. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, in hindsight, at that moment that I thought, okay, wait a minute, you know, maybe not here, but surgery can sometimes offer an immediate resolution to a problem. As I went on, I saw, you know, epidural hematomas drained and subdurals drained and tumors removed and people with epilepsy that, you know, were, were being treated with surgical, you know, remedies. And so, I think that that very first rotation, although I was, you know, kind of horrified that, that, you know, why am I doing this as my first rotation? I really don't have an interest in any of it was actually very formative and at least, you know, allowing me to realize, wait a minute, you know, at least in the surgical world, if there is a fix, it's, it's a rather more immediate fix. And that gratification is tremendous. Wow. That's very powerful. I feel like this is, um, a theme that I hear people talk about in their third and fourth years of medical school, but there are these very formative experiences that once you experience them, whether it's a patient or something happening in the hospital or an attending, they really impact your career right off the bat. It's almost like, I don't even know what you can compare that formative time to being a teenager, maybe (laughs) because things that you see are just so important to what's about to happen then for you in the future. So true. And, and you know what, Carrie, they're in the, the most unexpected places, in the most unexpected mm-hmm. ways. Um, they really are. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's not like the heavens opens and, you know, you hear the voice of God saying, okay, Carrie, you are going to be the next cardiothoracic surgeon. That may happen, but it's often in the stillness and in the quiet um, mm-hmm. uh, where your mind can just sort of process that you get a sense of what of what you really find important and what you really want to do and and you know sometimes it's a it's a struggle and sometimes you narrow it down and and that's okay that is the beautiful thing about medicine and the beautiful thing about being a medical student is that you can experience and you can enjoy and you can even change your mind it's wonderful i mean people can go from <laughs> you know, a psychiatry to anesthesia. I mean, it, it, but, it, you know, most of us, I think you kind of know in your soul and it's a matter of letting that conscious recognition come to your being, if, if that doesn't sound too esoteric. No, it, I don't think it does. I think oftentimes as a student and then I, I'm sure as somebody who's practicing, it's difficult to make the time in the day to be quiet and to listen to all those thoughts. And so I'd be curious when you look back on your time as a student, is there a habit that you felt like you were able to do that with to get the space to have time to reflect? 
Oh, definitely. Um, I, I um, even as an undergrad, um, I've always loved running. Uh, or as my husband kindly refers to me, I'm a jogger, not a runner, <laughs> given my speed uh, or lack thereof. Um, but I found that to be extremely cathartic. And they, of course, when, when you're a medical student and you're getting exam after exam or you're on rotations, I mean, sometimes you're only you know, given you know, 30 minutes a day or, or even 20 minutes a day. It really doesn't matter. But I think you're hitting on something that's really important. And it's actually one that I think as a medical student or even just as a human being, and I say this to the women I'm privileged to take care of, we owe it to ourselves to allow ourselves time for our soul and for our mind and for our body to decompress every day. And some days it might be 10 minutes and some days it might be 20. And if it's a real good day, it might be 40. But you must take time for yourself, whether you're a mother of eight or a surgical resident or a first year medical student, your mind and your sanity hinge upon it. And whether it's listening to music or meditating or playing an instrument or, as I was saying, for me, it was running and again, surrounding yourself with people. I remember as a medical student, um, a few of my incredible friends, lifelong friends that I'm still in contact with, we'd, we'd go out and run together. And um, just that time to decompress. And I, I particularly like the physical because I always you know, felt that you know, when you're such intensely mentally focused, I think physical exercise kind of helps recenter and refocus you. But clearly anything. But the point is you deserve it and you need it. And it may be different from day to day, but it absolutely must be every day. You must take time for yourself. There is no negotiating that no matter who you are or what you are. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, that's so important. And, um, I hope that whoever's out there listening, hear that time and time again, <laughs> and I need to hear it time and time again as well. Um, because that can be difficult, um, to remind yourself when you're getting in the swing of many things, but so important. I totally agree. Um, if, if you had to choose, I guess we've been basically filling the last 10 minutes with advice or so, but if you had to choose one piece of advice for, um, a woman who is in college or in medical school, what do you think it would be? Without a doubt, um, you are good enough. It's just that simple. It's, it's a period. You are good enough, period. You are good enough. You are good enough as you are. You don't need the world's validation. You don't need people to tell you. That doesn't mean that you're going to succeed at everything, you know, but, um, you know, you fall down a thousand times, get back up a thousand and one. Um, life has its ups and downs. Life has its successes and failures. But that doesn't mean that you can't achieve and you can't succeed, um, no matter what, if you put your goal to it. And I think a lot of times people doubt that. And I think that's where the problem is. If you doubt that you're good enough, if you doubt that you can succeed. I heard some statistic about, I think it was Steven Spielberg. He got rejected like 300 times before he mm -hmm. finally made it as a director. 
And that just tells you, I mean, and look who he is. I mean, he's one of the, I mean, you know, most famous, well-known directors. And, you know, clearly, clearly he had the drive to persist. Clearly he knew rejection and failure, but it's what you do with it. And it's how you get through it. So if you are facing any kind of, you know, what appears to be a quote failure, I would say it's simply a challenge that is going to be overcome one way or another. But I think we really, we really, the collective we, myself included, really suffered from a sense of I'm, I'm good enough and I'm good enough the way I am. You know, I'm not asking yeah. you for the bar, but we're good enough. We're good enough and we will achieve and succeed, especially when there's an overwhelming number of voices, real or sometimes even, you know, embellished in our minds that tell us we're not, can't, you cannot listen to those. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're so welcome. In um, kind of changing the way that our conversation is going a little bit, um, I do want to spend some time talking about the experience of being a woman in your field and some of the challenges or benefits that you have found in your job in that way. Um, so I guess specifically, let's start with as a female practitioner, especially working in the breast field, you get to work with women all day, which I'm sure is, um, wonderful. Could you talk about some of the good things or some of the gifts that you find working as a female doctor? I, let me tell you, I think one of the greatest gifts I could ever be given in this universe is taking care of other humans, other people. I'm blessed that they're mostly women, although there are some men. And let me tell you, men are fabulous. I don't want this to be like any type of, you know, <laughs> I only take care of women and, you know, yes. men can go elsewhere. But um, I think it is such an absolute privilege to, to take care of people, particularly in the surgical world. It's the absolute ultimate trust that you have with your, with your patients. When they go to sleep, they are completely trusting of you 1000%. They are trusting your judgment. They are trusting your skill. They are trusting your integrity. They are trusting your knowledge. They are trusting your honesty. Um, there's nothing like the privilege of, of operating on a woman or, or anybody for that matter, that trust is sacred. And I really think that the day that I should ever not realize the intensity of that, of that bond is, is the day I need to retire. So, um, surgery is a very, very unique field, um, in that regards. Um, I could go on and on why I think breast surgery is the best thing ever. Um, but I will say that uh, I realize most of the listeners are probably not going into breast surgery, and that's that's perfectly fine. That's not the goal. But I would say that as a woman, and I would bet the GYN folks feel similarly, but I would say in breast surgery in particular, it's one of those services where it actually, I think, is advantageous to be a woman. Women want women. And I think there's an understanding as a woman speaking to another woman who, if she's telling you about her breast pain or if she's telling you about how, you know, certain times of the month, you know, her breasts are, are, you know, heavy and tender and so on and so forth. I think there's an empathy there that as a woman is really, it's, it's quite, it's quite powerful. And I think furthermore with the cancer patients that I'm privileged to take care of, 
when you look a woman in the eye who's so frightened about what this means and, you know, as if the diagnosis and the treatment isn't as difficult enough with breast surgery, there's the whole layer of sexuality that we're all so afraid to talk about or go near. But I'm talking about a woman's sense of self-esteem. I'm talking about her relationships with her partner. I'm talking about, you know, when she looks in the mirror every day or when she puts her clothes on, her confidence. Um, and I think it's a very unique and sacred bond to have with a woman where you can actually understand her in more than just the medical and in more than just the biological, meaning, okay, your breast cancer is ductile and it's estrogen positive and so on and so <laughs> forth. Those things are critical. We can't, we cannot, and we will not underestimate or, or not delve into those, those um, issues wholeheartedly. But then there comes the level of taking care of a woman's soul and her spirit and I, I've always said that, you know, cure is really not the focus. It should be healing. Healing is inclusive of cure, but cure is of the body where healing includes the mind and the spirit and the soul. And you cannot go through a journey of breast cancer without including those, those other elements. So Long, long answer to a simple question, but I think um, in particular breast surgery, I'm very unique or you know, women in breast surgery um, are very unique because I think it's that one area where it actually benefits um, patients tremendously where, where they want to see uh, a woman specialist. Um, and that's not saying the men that do breast surgery aren't fantastic. Um, I, let me tell you, my mentor from residency is, you know, there's, there's like, you know, there's, there's nobody up that high on a pedestal in, in my medical, you know, cabinet, as you say, than, than him. But, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to leave the men out that, that do take care of women, but I think it's, it's a, it's a very special and it's a very powerful bond that you can have as a woman taking care of another woman, um, in the breast, in the breast world. I think when it comes to, you know, the hierarchy, however, as wonderful as it is, I think, unfortunately, the majority of chairmen um, are still men. Um, you know, there are, you know, more women coming into those, you know, leadership roles. But I think, you know, there's hope. There's hope with classes like yours, Carrie. And, and from what I understand and from what I read, um, I guess medical schools are now more female dominated than male. Um so I would hope that that would translate into those leadership positions as well. But I, I hate to say it, I still think for the majority, there's a glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. You know, you get to a certain point and then, you know, the chairmen's, um, the CEOs, the, the people running hospitals, unfortunately, I think are still very, very male dominated. Is there something in the experience of being, um, say, a medical student or a resident that we as women can work on to position ourselves to be in positions of making it to being chairwomen or in that uh, equivalent level of leadership in our future? Superb question. I think that would start with um, when when you look at residency programs, regardless of what you go into, whether it's surgery or pediatrics or family medicine or pathology, um, I would look for um, 
you know, among the things that are important to you, clearly one um, should include looking for programs where there are a lot of women, women residents, women on the faculty, um, because that tells you the kind of tone that is being set at that institution and sort of the acceptance level. And I think it also gives you a sense of potentially the trajectory there. Um, I think programs where there are very few women, um, you know, there, there's probably a reason for that. I don't think it's just chance. Um, and so in order to really look at potential leadership um, and mentorship from women in those leadership positions, uh, I would be very clear to make sure that, you know, the faculty has a lot of, a lot of women or if there's precedence, you know, have they ever had a female surgeon, um, or, excuse me, female chairman? I was just thinking that um, Julie Fleischlag, who is a woman that I had the absolute privilege of, um, Dr. Julie Fleischlag, that is, I had a privilege of hearing her speak at, um, it was a symposium, and it was about women in medicine and women empowering women and this woman is a force to be reckoned with. She's a vascular surgeon by training. Um, I think she was actually the chairman at John Hopkins. Um, I am not sure what institution she's at now. I'm blanking. Um, but she was just, you know, someone like that um, would be, you know, an absolute powerhouse um, to have uh, at an institution where you might work or train. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I always said I would work at any hospital she's um, or any program that she's heading for free. Uh, or maybe <laughs> to have like enough like a, a food and you know uh, rent stipend. Um, but that's how how amazed and, and impressed I am by her and and her mentorship and just hearing her speak was so uplifting. And so I think you know having more of those conferences and having more of those symposiums and putting them together and. Um, you know, uh, the American Women's Association. I mean, all of these things are, they're tremendous. This is where it starts. This is where we have a voice. This is where we have a platform. That's excellent advice. Um, in terms of your experience then being a female in surgery, what are some of the things that you feel have been the most challenging? Oh, that's a really good question <laughs> again, Carrie. Um, I think work-life balance, um, which I think for women and for men, but I, I clearly just keep to my thoughts, um, I think in medicine is a real challenge. And I think in particular, um, as, as a woman, you know, not that everybody, you know, wants to have a family or wants to have children. It's very much an individual choice. Um, but I think finding that balance or just finding the balance of having meaningful relationships um, whether it's with a partner, whether it's with your family members, whether it's with, you know, close and dear friends that might as well be family. Um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, and I think that's why when I was saying bar none, you have to make time for yourself, even if it's, you know, 10 minutes a day, you have to take that time for yourself. That's easier to do than say, for example, you know, remain happily married. Um, <laughs> if your spouse is in medicine or not in medicine, for example. So I, I think there are some very unique challenges for, for any woman who's career um, minded and, and who values and 
you know, has significant career aspirations, particularly in medicine, since, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But finding that balance is, is a real challenge. And again, advice from a phenomenal mentor that, uh, <laughs> that I, I am privileged to, to know. She said, look, you can do it all, but you may not be able to do it all at once. And I just think that is such brilliant advice. You know, you can be a mom, you can be a wife, you can be a surgeon. If you want to be, you know, uh, in leadership position or whatnot, what have you. Um, if you want to be the next CEO of, you know, Yale, New Haven or what have you. Um, it's not that you can't do it and it's not that you can't have it all, but it may be the order and the priority and the timing of it. You know, um, yeah. and I, I think that is profound because I think, and myself included until I got that, ex, you know, advice, probably when I was about 35, um, <laughs> I felt that I had to choose that it wasn't going to be that I could be one or the other, that I couldn't be a wife or a mom or a sister or a daughter. I was going to have to sacrifice. I was going to have to pick and choose or maybe allow the universe to pick and choose for me. And that's clearly mm. something that I hope people, if they're listening, realize is not the case. You might not be able to do it all, meaning you might have to time things and plan things a little bit differently, especially with, you know, child care. Um, but there are plenty of women that, you know, have children in residency. God bless them. I don't know how they do that, but it is possible. And the reason I know it's possible is even though I didn't do it, I saw women do it. And, and so that's where that mentorship comes in. And so similarly, you know, if you want to climb that ladder, if you're very career focused, absolutely. But, you know, it's the timing of it and it's the prioritization of it and it can shuffle. It's not set in stone. That is such important advice and literally brought me into the thing that I was going to ask you next, which was in doing that, how do you set your priorities? Mm. I think you have to be honest with yourself. Mm. And I, that is so much easier said than done. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. you, me. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving the advice, but let me tell you, I struggle. <laughs> um, so let's be clear on that. Um, but I think that's the first thing. That's, that's the imperative step to take. And I think sometimes it's frightening, to be honest with yourself, because if you're, you're afraid of what it means, or you're afraid of, of, you know, saying it or feeling it or thinking it. Um, there, there may be a guilt associated with it. Like, you know, what if I want to put myself first before my family? Um, you know, that may be the truth, but it's such a, it's such a thing that most people be like, Oh my gosh, I can't admit that. I can't admit that to myself. I can't say that out loud. I can't say that to my spouse. Um, but you can't move forward and you can't, you know, be honest and, and be clear without being honest with yourself. And that doesn't mean you have to broadcast it to the world. It might be frightening to say, but you have to at least be honest with yourself. Um, so I think that's really central. That's really, really central. And then I think the realization that you know what, I, I can prioritize, but the priorities can shuffle. They're not set in stone. Um, and sort of having a, a somewhat of a game plan. And that, that, you know, I'll tell you, that 
that doesn't mean that you have it all written out. So by the time I'm, you know, 30 and four days, I'm going to have 6.3 children. <laughs> but, you know, this is something that I wish somebody would have mentioned to me again, a letter to myself. Um, and I wonder why we don't do more of this in medical school, but when we're all in, in, you know, that, you know, I'm going to be this, that, and the other, you may not at all. And certainly I wasn't thinking about, you know, having a family, it may be the last thing on your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but being female, we know that there is, you know, the clock is ticking in a sense. And so, you know, I wish that they would mention at least in residency programs, look, you know, maybe consider, you know, freezing eggs or maybe consider, um, you know, options at that point. You know, if you're ready to have kids, great. If you're in a, you know, in, in a position in your life that you can, um, if you don't know, that's fine too. give yourself the option. But I think you're so blindsided and you're so driven at that point that you're not thinking it. You may or may not even be in a relationship. You may or may not even want to be a, a parent. Um, but I, but I feel that there needs to be some dialogue about it, at least to give people the option or the thought. Mm-hmm. Um, because before you know it, you're in your thirties and, and that's not the end of the world. And there's no apology, um, for, for, for being, um, you know, career focused and driven, but I just wish that somebody would have maybe get, you know, had a conversation at some point, like, if this is something that you may consider or want to consider in the future, give yourself the options at this point. Yeah. You know, we just don't talk about it. We don't take care of ourselves at any human level um, when we're in training. Mm. Yeah, that's such an important thought to send to people that are younger as well, because the, the I think the earlier you kind of start to think about these things, possibly the more easy they are to get your thoughts on for yourself about what you really want, because it seems like to me, even, I mean, I'm finished, you know, in the beginning of my fourth year of medical school, thinking about those things, uh, as I'm prioritizing, looking at my list of, okay, where do I maybe want to go to residency? What do I maybe want to do? That's like the last thing on the list. But at yeah. the same time, if you don't start at some point, like yes. you're saying, you're going to be blindsided. You're blindsided. And I'll tell you, Carrie, it, honestly, it wasn't on my list. It wasn't even on my list when I graduated from residency, to be honest. (laughs) It it wasn't even on the list. There was an assumption. There was, I hadn't been honest with myself. I hadn't really thought about it. I didn't take the time to sit down and say, okay, what are my goals? What are my long-term goals? And more importantly, how do I keep my options open? You know, whether you want to have a kid or you don't want to have a kid or who, who knows, but allow yourself the option should it lend itself. I mean, I think that's where being honest and that's where prioritizing comes in because you at least have had a conversation, have had a thought, um, may act on it, may not, um, but you, but it's at least on your radar. And it's not that you're committing to anything either, but it's, it's at least a thought that has processed in your mind because I would say the majority of us and I put myself number one, you completely blindsided and you're so focused because that's all you've ever been. You don't get to be a fourth year medical student without being extremely intelligent, extremely hardworking, extremely driven, extremely ambitious. I mean, and I'm scratching the surface. I'm not even doing it justice, but the, 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 the beauty of all of that, and there's tremendous beauty in that you can rule the world and you can change the world. And it's not just hocus pocus, 
But in that, we forget ourselves. And that might include other things. I'm, I'm just using the biology as an example. Um, you know, some people may want to, I mean, my husband, for example, thank God he has a day job, but he really wanted to be like a basketball player, like serious. Thank God he has a day job. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is you can't lose yourself, whether it's you really have in your soul to you know, do something or be something. You, 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 have, to, you have to feed it. Um, and if you don't know, that's fine. But I would say keep that option open. Don't neglect it. Um, yeah. And, and we're not programmed to think that way because we're go, 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 we mm. go and succeed, go, go and blow that, you know, USMLE two out of the water, you know, rock those interviews, get the best residency. And that, that is phenomenal and fantastic and does re- require an, an intensity. Um, and, and that's the priority right now. Um, but just kind of looking at the long range, and just kind of, you know, what, what are my overall goals here? And that includes lifestyle. You know, when you think about what to go into, you know, for some people, it's very clear that they, you know, lifestyle is really important. That's one of their goals. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just being honest with yourself. What, what is, what is important? It seems like this is a conversation that we need to have early on in medical school, to be honest with you. To promote these types of things. Yeah. 100%. And they don't happen. I mean, I hope things have changed. I can tell you um, we did not have any of this um, as far as lifestyle, you know, conversations and 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 all, all of this that we're talking about, which is, as I said, Carrie, that's why this is so absolutely magnificent that you're doing this and that you're putting it out there so that it is available to people. Um, because otherwise I, I don't know, Carrie, do they do this in, in, in your school? Are they doing this now as part of medical school curriculum? Um, I think that Quinnipiac has made a great stride toward adding, we have an interest group that specifically talks about lifestyle. Um, and we have a couple of resources that student affairs offers us, um, in our various like weeks of orientation and weeks in between blocks, et cetera. It's almost like it needs to be a longitudinal part of your curriculum, like you're explaining that throughout this time, you, you have dedicated windows where you're supposed to be thinking about these things because unless you're having that time and spending the moments being honest with yourself, then it's not always, I think used as wisely as it should be. But at the same time, I mean, maybe that's just part of the personal growth that we should all be having. I don't know, but it's an interesting point and, and very important to include in, I think, even thoughts from when you're in college, you know, how am I going to really, truly set the goals that are important for me? I, I think you make a, an outstanding point, Carrie, which is, you know, multiple interfaces, because again, you evolve and you change. I'm sure what you know now and what you think now, it, it may be similar to what you felt as a first year, but it, I suspect not, or it may have changed or evolved in some way. And so your goals, your perceptions, your, your um, interests, um, they evolve. They evolve with your education. They evolve with your experiences. And so issues that maybe not, you know, were not, you know, obvious or important at one point certainly may surface after you, you know, experience, um, 
you know, something, something intense. So, you know, if you rotate on the cardiothoracic service and you think, oh my God, this is like the best thing ever. I, I can't breathe without being a, a cardiac surgeon. <laughs> but then now, you know, at some level you're going to think, but hmm, you know, how am I going to balance, you know, my life and how am I going to balance, because that's intense and the years of, edu- you know, residency and training and, and that, that, that comes about from your experience and from your journey through medical school. So I think your point is right on that there need to be multiple interfaces throughout the four years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Risk, this has just been an absolutely outstanding conversation. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing all of your advice. It's been wonderful. Oh. My absolute pleasure. I, again, I applaud you from here to where you are about how phenomenal um, this is. And I think for you and for anybody who's listening to this, um, just remember, keep your eye on the endpoint. Um, there, you know, the ups and downs, the bumps, yes, um, that's part of the journey, but the end point is the end point. And if you're convicted to get there, then you are going to get there. And, you know, surrounding yourself with the positive cabinet, as you put it so well, and the mentors, um, the mentors that mentor you about, you know, different, different things. Um, but, but having mentors, having people that are in your corner, listening to your inner voice, being honest with yourself, and then, and then realizing that you are good enough and you will achieve and you will succeed. And that doesn't mean it won't be without challenges or even potential, you know, perceived failures, but it, it, you will get to the end point. Just keep your eye on the end point. Don't take your eyes off of it. Thank you, Dr. Risk, for joining us on Essential Wisdom, Inspiring Future Female Physicians. Your heartfelt and inspiring words are so appreciated. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in. This was such a fun episode to record, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. If you're new to listening, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or online at essentialwisdom.buzzsprout.com. You can find additional information about these physicians online at essentialwisdominspiringphysicians.com. On Thursday, we are welcoming Dr. Lauren Kane, a congenital cardiac surgeon, to the show. Make sure to tune in. If you have questions, comments, please drop these on the website at essentialwisdominspiringphysicians.com. Thank you all for listening. Happy Monday. Have a great week.